Well, thanks, Joe, and thank you, Rick, for leading. Um, my name is Cody. I am uh, one of the pastors here. Frank, who's usually up here, is actually in Iowa this week, and I'm pretty sure July and August is pretty much the only time when it makes sense for you to leave and go to Iowa from here, but um, he's there. Uh, so we're going to be continuing in our series in Mark. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark. We'll be doing this pretty much up until Christmas, and uh, what you just heard read was what's called the Transfiguration. Um, this is an incredibly important moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is one that was recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's called Synoptic because they're all through the same lens. They're basically telling the same story with a lot of the same events, just with kind of a different end with some different details in it. But this is, a, this is an incredibly important story. It's an incredibly important moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. I, I, this is kind of a turning point. This is oftentimes kind of the hinge moment in the narrative of the Gospels, where everything is kind of looking up for Jesus, the transfiguration happens, and then you start to see the decline. You start to see people not wanting to follow him, people turning it back on him, ultimately to the point where he is killed. I like to think of this a lot like uh, the way uh, in The Lord of the Rings, when uh, Frodo realizes he's going to have to go to Mordor alone, and he just leaves the fellowship. And they all say, something's different now. There's literally no other connection between the Transfiguration and the Lord of the Rings, apart from the fact that they are turning points in the story. I really just mainly wanted to talk about Frodo. Just drop him in there briefly. Um, but but this, is, this is a very important story. And today what we're going to look at is, is basically why is this important? Why does the Transfiguration matter? What happened in this event that, that, that is such a big deal that all three of these gospel writers would include it. Why is this so important? And, and ultimately, what does that mean for those who would follow him? And I'm just going to kind of tell you up front the big picture, and then we're going to unpack it throughout the rest of the sermon. That's that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and following him is costly, but worth it. That's ultimately what I want us to walk away seeing, that Jesus is the Son of God, and following him is costly, but worth it. I want to kind of go back through this story. I'm going to point out just a few things, and then we're going to look at why is this story so significant? What is the significance of the transfiguration? So let's start again in verse 2. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I first off just want to point out that this is, this is a strange moment. It's not like Jesus went up there and changed his clothes and washed his face or something like that. He, became, he went from being one thing to another. It's like a semi-truck turning into Optimus Prime. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I wrestled with whether or not to say that, and I said it anyways. Because um, I just compared Jesus to Optimus Prime. Uh, but I... Uh, like, this is something different. This is something unique. He went from being common to being glorious. They, they don't really even have words to describe what they saw. So they said his clothes became whiter than anything could ever be bleached. This is something they had not seen before. So th that's, that's weird. That's new. That's different. And then, on top of that, he's talking with two people that haven't been around for a while. Moses hadn't been there for a, a thousand years, over a thousand years. Elijah hadn't been there for over 600 years. This was a strange, weird moment to experience. This was a divine moment. This was something unique. This was something glorious. And then it continues, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Um, Peter right here does something that I think a lot of us do when we're in moments like this where we just don't know what to do, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to act, anything like that. And that's, Peter acted like a complete idiot. Like he just, he just didn't know what to say. He's looking around. I can just imagine the scene. And I love that this detail is included in, in, in these stories because it shows like the, the very realness of this thing. This divine moment happened and then Peter just acts like a complete idiot. He comes up and says, well, this is cool. Why don't we make some tents, huh? I can just imagine them looking around like, like looking at the other disciples and them just shaking their heads in disapproval. 
This happens, and what, I think my favorite part about it is that it's just ignored. No, nobody says anything to him about it. They just keep doing what they're doing. I think what's also unfortunate is instead of recording this, the conversation between Jesus and Elijah and Moses, which would have been really cool, they instead record Peter the idiot. But uh, going on, after they ignore Peter, it says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. There is so much in this event. And I, and I want us to talk about what is the significance of the transfiguration? What is the significance of this moment? Uh, and so much of the significance, sadly, I think, rests upon an understanding of the Old Testament and what happened there. I, I think this is kind of one of the great tragedies of the modern church. I think we, we spend a lot of time in the New Testament, which is great. Don't get me wrong. We need to know Jesus. We need to know what Paul and John and Peter and all of them said afterwards. But I think it's a, one, of the, one of the great tragedies is that oftentimes we are very ignorant of what the Old Testament says, of what is written there. And, and, and because there is so much Old Testament imagery so much Old Testament prophecy, so much Old Testament fulfillment happening in this moment. Without a knowledge of it, we don't see it. So I want us to look into that. What is happening here? Why Moses? Why Elijah? It seemed fairly random until you actually see kind of what's happening from a prophetic standpoint. So what is the significance of the transfiguration? The first and probably the most important thing that the transfiguration does is that it clarifies who Jesus is. Up until this point, uh, Jesus was fairly ambiguous. He would speak in parables. A lot of people had suspicions of him. Some people thought he was a rabbi. Some people thought he might have been something like John the Baptist. Some people thought he was just kind of this crazy rabble-rouser. They, they, they didn't know what to say. And up until this point, Jesus hadn't really fully defined it until this moment. This is the moment that clarifies the full nature and, and who and identity of who Jesus is. So it clarifies who Jesus is, and it does it in three very significant ways. And the first has to do with the presence of Moses. Moses being there was not an accident. Um, Moses uh, was, up until Jesus, the most important person in the history of God's redemption of the world. Moses was a big deal. Um, Moses was the one whom God chose to redeem his people out of Egypt. He brought them through the Exodus. He led them through the wilderness. He was the advocate. He, he was the one who received the law from God and brought it down to the people. He was the one who stood between God's wrath and the people when the people messed up. He was the one who was the in, interceder on the people's behalf. So when they say, when, when they talk about Moses, this is who's in their mind. But more specifically, there's something that Moses said near the end of his life. And the book of Deuteronomy records it. Deuteronomy is, is my favorite book of the Bible. It's, it's basically like the diary of Moses. It's an incredibly beautiful book. And right near, as he's kind of closing in on, on death and he knows his time is coming, he says this to the people because they're getting scared because they know he's, he's getting old. He says this in, in chapter 18, verse 15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. See, there's a lot connecting this story this event, the transfiguration with Moses. Um, the, the, the connection between when Moses went up to receive the law is very intentional. Uh, there's so many details. I think scholars list about 20 similarities between 
the event of the transfiguration and the event of Moses going up to receive the law. It took them six days to go up there. The clothes were changed white. The face was different. The voice of God happened. They came down to a bunch of crazy people doing crazy things. This was very intentional. When the transfiguration happened, this event, the transfiguration event, was supposed to be connected to the moment God gave the law to Moses. These are very intentional moments. And then when Moses was talking about, there's going to be another Moses like me, there's going to be somebody, a prophet like me, will be raised up among the people. People were looking for it. So you have to remember, at the time of Jesus, uh, people were looking at these prophecies and talking about these a lot. They'd been under the rule of Greece and then under the rule of Rome. They hadn't heard from the prophets in over 400 years and they were anxiously awaiting. They clung to these prophecies. They were waiting, they were looking. When will God send the Moses? When will God send the prophet like Moses to deliver his people, to intercede on behalf, to lead them, to guide them? When will they send him there? And that's what's happening at the transfiguration. At this moment, God is making it very clear that that moment is now. Jesus is the better Moses. He is the prophetic fulfillment of Moses. He is the one whom they've been looking for. He is the one whom they've been anticipating. He is the one who climbed the mountain just like Moses, but instead of receiving the law, fulfilled it. He is the one who is interceding on behalf to save and rescue his people. This is him. This is the better Moses. So it clarifies and defines who Jesus is in that. This is the one whom they've been waiting for, the better Moses. The next thing it does is it has to do with Elijah. Elijah is also a very, very important figure in Israel. He's more, when you think of Old Testament prophet, he's the guy most people think of. He's kind of the archetype. He was the great prophet. He stood at the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel stood up to them. When when all the prophets of Baal and Israel had turned their back on God, he stood up to them. He spoke to them. He was a prophet. He did great wonders. He was this highly revered man. But more specifically to this, Elijah played a key role in the anticipation of the coming of the day of the Lord. They knew that something had to happen with Elijah before God would come back and redeem and rescue his people. And they get this from the book of Malachi. These are the last, by the way, these are, I'm about to read you the last three verses of the Old Testament. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Not only were the people looking, hoping for, longing for Moses to come back, longing for, for this better Moses to come, but they were looking for Elijah. They were waiting for him. They were anticipating because they knew that once Elijah comes, the day of the Lord is at hand. The kingdom would be established. Their salvation is near. So they see Elijah there. And, 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 and you can tell the disciples are picking up on something. Now, the disciples were not highly educated people in the Old Testament, but they were around. They probably grew up going to the synagogues and hearing. They hear the scribes talking about it, and the scribes say, Elijah has to come. And the disciples ask Jesus, because they're, they're starting to piece things together. I don't think the disciples actually got this moment at the time. It doesn't say it, but I just don't think that they really got it. I don't think they actually put it all together until after Jesus rose from the grave. But they started to piece it together, like, wait, the scribes have been talking about Elijah. The scribes have been saying things about Elijah, that Elijah has to come first. And we just saw him. They're starting to piece this together, that something's happening here, something unique, something special. And Jesus says, yes, Elijah does have to come first. And not only did you see him, but Elijah did come. See, he's saying that John the Baptist was Elijah. This is something that he alludes to here and that he makes clear in other parts that he sees John the Baptist as Elijah. And why this is so important in the transfiguration, why this is so important to the clarity of the identity of Jesus is because just as people were waiting and, and looking for the better Moses to come, 
People were waiting for Elijah to come because they knew the Son of Man would come afterwards. And in this moment, God is making clear, Jesus is the Son of Man who comes after Elijah. He is the one for whom they've been waiting. He is the prophetic fulfillment of Moses. He is the Son of Man who comes after Elijah. He's who they've been longing for. He's who they've been waiting for. Who they've been yearning for to see. And then if that wasn't clear enough, God actually just says it. Like, it, it, it's, it's great when God actually just speaks, because there, there's moments, there's not actually that many moments when he's actually just speaking audibly in the Bible that's recorded. But, but when he does, it's very clear what he's saying. He looks down and he says to the disciples, this, this Jesus right here that you're seeing, this is my son. This is my son. So of Moses, God called him friend. Moses was a friend, which would be a pretty cool thing for God to call you. Elijah was so dear to Moses that God didn't actually let him die. Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire before he could die. These were very, very dear people, but neither of them were called son. What God is making explicitly clear is that this man standing in front of them, this man that had climbed the mountain, that had transfigured before them, is not like anything the Israel and the world has ever experienced. This is something new. This is something different. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a healer. He's not just a great teacher, but this is God's son. This is God in flesh. This is the one, the prophet like Moses, who would come and, and restore all things, who would come and lead his people out of the slavery of sin, who would fulfill the law, who would intercede on behalf of the people between him and God. He was the one who would come after Elijah to establish the kingdom. He was the one who would embody the law, the love, the word of God. This is God's son. I love it because this is, it's, it's almost as though G God is introducing Jesus to the disciples and thus to everybody else for the first time. It's almost like this is an introduction. Like they come up on this mountain and they see all this stuff happening and then God comes down and he says to the disciples, okay, I want to introduce you to the real Jesus, to the full picture of who you've been following. This is the man you've been waiting for. This is the moment that you've been longing for. The day of redemption is at hand. I, I can only imagine what the disciples, how the disciples felt after this kind of became pieced together. Like I said, I don't think they fully got it. I think they knew that something big happened there. I just don't think they've really pieced it together until after the resurrection. But I can just imagine them telling people about it, telling people about the transfiguration, telling people what they saw, what they experienced, it had, to be, it had to be this like spine-tingling moment. Kind of like when you realize Bruce Willis is dead like the whole time in The Sixth Sense. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, or like when the, you realize that Verbal Kent is Kaiser Sose in The Usual Suspects. <laughs> for people who have not seen The Usual Suspects, you will hate me um, for that comment. But it, it's a moment like that where just your skin begins to crawl because you realize that something Something that you didn't see coming has happened. This twist. See, up until this point, the, the disciples and, and, and the people of Israel had been growing up reading of Moses. Every Passover, they would read the story of the Exodus. They would leave a door open for Elijah. They would take the cup of redemption. They would take the cup of restoration, longing for this moment. They were looking for it. They were waiting for it. And when you see what's happening here, when you see what's happening up on this mountain, you realize that moment is here. God has come in full for the restoration, for the redemption of his people. That is what's so important about the transfiguration. That is what happens here. That God defines Jesus as his son. Very clearly, very explicitly. And clarifies who Jesus is. The second thing that the transfiguration does is that once Jesus is out there, once it's known that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's nothing less but the Son of God, it draws a line in the sand. 
It draws a line in the sand for his disciples. It makes it abundantly clear that this is who I am and this is what it's going to mean to follow me. You're either going to be with me 100%, accept me completely as the Son of God, or you're going to reject me and lose me. This is the line drawn in the sand. You either take Jesus as he is, as he defines himself, or you reject him. It's, it's, it's interesting. So this is the second time God the Father has spoken something like this over Jesus. The first time is at his baptism. He says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At that moment, he's talking to Jesus. I think the baptism really happens for Jesus. Like people witness it, people experience it, but nobody knows what to do with it at that point, point in time. And God's not talking to people. He's talking to Jesus. It's like, it's like a father stooping down to his son saying, you're about to go through something hard. This is going to be awful, and I just want to tell you that I love you. That's, that's what happens at the baptism. But this moment is not for Jesus. Moses, Elijah, Jesus are not surprised by what, Jesus, by what God the Father says. They don't think this moment is weird at all. I love it. Like when they start talking, it's like they're just picking up a conversation that they've been having for years. This isn't weird for them. This moment is for the disciples. The transfiguration happens for the disciples. It happens for those who want to follow him in case there is any ambiguity about who Jesus is and what he was here to do. So this moment is for the disciples. And we're going to see in the following stories, I'm, I'm going to read these and we're going to look back because I think it illuminates and, and shows two types of people. It's going to show those who don't see Jesus as God's son and kind of the, the characteristics what happens when you don't see Jesus as God's son, what we do and what, how we try to use Jesus when we don't see him as God's son. And, it's a, and it also shows those who do see Jesus as God's son. What are the character qualities? What are the reactions? What are the responses that should happen when you actually believe and accept and realize and see that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God? So I'm going to read, read these stories. Um, I call them stories as though they're not true. I'm going to read these events. Um, and we're going to go back, and I'm just going to point out a few things in them. Starting in verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so the most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And we had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man it's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In these stories, we see two types of people emerge. Those who do see Jesus as God's son and those who don't. And I want us to first look because the majority of the people don't. There's actually only one person in these stories who actually recognizes Jesus for who he is and responds appropriately. And the first, story, the first is Peter, who does not see him at that moment, even though he's literally looking at him in the glorious state. He doesn't really see, he doesn't really get it, he doesn't really recognize. And that's when Peter acts like an idiot and says, hey, let's build three tents. See, a little bit before this, Jesus has foretold his death and resurrection. He told them, he kind of unveiled this to him. Hey, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. That's where this is going. I'll rise from the dead, but that's, what this is, this is, that's what's going to happen here. And then they all of a sudden, they come up, and they see this moment, and Peter's looking around saying, I don't know what Jesus was talking about down there, but this looks great. We should just stay here. And leave the other nine. Didn't like them much anyways. Let's just stay here. See, what Peter wanted, and I think what oftentimes a lot of people want, and the way people will use Jesus when they don't believe he is God's son, is they want to use him just as a free ride to glory. They just kind of want to use him as just a free ride. Now, I want, uh, this is where I'm going to have to get, uh, it's going to get, there's, there's tension, there's truth in the tension of two things that the Bible affirms. First, that grace is free. Grace is not something we earn. It's not something that we can buy from God. It's not something that we can be good enough to receive. The Bible is very clear. There will be people who accept Jesus and, and, and become Christians at a very young age, live their lives faithfully following him, and there are some who will live their lives completely against God, their whole lives and on their deathbed except Jesus, and the reward is the same. It doesn't change the access we have to Jesus. It doesn't change the restoration. It doesn't change the reality of our redemption. Grace is free, so I don't want you to mishear me. But another thing, and it, it's Jesus who actually says this more than anybody else, is that although grace is free, grace is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. It costs us everything. God's love, God's forgiveness is not something that, that we can just kind of put as a part of our salvation portfolio. I, think, I really think that that's like sometimes how we look at it, like we're just diversifying our investment. We're saying, okay, we've got God's grace over here, so I prayed the prayer, I did that, and then over here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just try to, try to do good works because I think that's, that, might, that could be it, I don't know. I'm gonna do that, but just in case, just in case all of it's wrong, I'm just gonna try to bring heaven down here. I'm gonna seek comfort, I'm gonna seek pleasure, I'm gonna do all of these things, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. This is how we see him as one of the many ways that we can kind of hedge our bets for salvation. And what Jesus makes very clear is you either invest everything in him or you lose it all. Following him is costly. Even though God's grace is free, it is not cheap. Although it costs us nothing, it also costs us everything. But when we don't see Jesus as God, when we don't recognize him for who he is, oftentimes one of, the way, one of the things we try to do is we just treat him as a free ride to glory. A get out of hell free card. And what Jesus is saying is, is that doesn't work. That's not faith. That's not discipleship. That's not what it means to follow me. Another thing that we see for those who don't see Jesus as God's son, that they try to use Jesus for healing in a show, basically for entertainment. They turn him into a commodity that they can consume. We see this as they come down the mountain. There's a bunch of people there. They're hearing the scribes arguing. They're trying to watch the disciples heal people. They're just there, they're just there because it's entertaining. It's like they're on the way to the marketplace. They're like, ah, let's go see what's going on with Jesus today. We could get fed, could see a miracle, somebody could get healed. At least we'll see an argument. It's always good for an argument. I mean, that's literally how they're treating Jesus. 
That's what they're seeing, Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to confess something to you that will lose probably 95% of the respect of this room and gain the undying loyalty of about 5% of you. So I, I'm going to say it. But a few years ago, I, I began to uh, watch this show, The Bachelor, and I am now like an avid fan of it. Like, it's sad. Like, tomorrow night, I'm watching The Final Rose. I'm going to watch if Caitlin chooses Nick or Sean. And yes, I know their names. Like, I know their names. I didn't even look at my notes. I know their names. I know these people. They're kind of my friends. Um, like, it started innocently enough. I, I was teaching uh, for a singles group um, just on dating and stuff like that while I was in seminary. And I'm like, okay, I'll watch one of these episodes. I've never seen one before. I'll watch this, try to get some fodder, some illustrations for my dating talk. And I watched it. I'm like, this, this show is stupid. This is a dumb show but I kind of want to know who gets the rose next time. And it just kind of, it's, it's just a very slippery slope, and it's very sad. Um, but, uh, but the truth is, like, and I can try to justify it. Like, I've tried to justify it in the past. I'm like, oh, it's a sociological study of just how people view love and dating and romance. It, it's a great explication of uh, culture. I'm just exegeting culture, I'd say that. But no, the truth is I'm just entertained by it. Like, it's a very entertaining show, and it's meant to be. It's kind of sad. It's kind of funny all these different things. And I say this because, like, we're supposed to be entertained by things like that. Those are intended for consumption. Those are made to be entertaining. What oftentimes happens, though, is I think, and what's so sad, and it can only happen if we don't see Jesus as God's son, is that we approach Jesus the same way we approach the bachelor, the same way we approach a restaurant or a coffee shop, same way we would approach some other public service. We turn him into a commodity. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this very bluntly, because I think the Bible says it very bluntly, that you can't see Jesus as the Son of God and see him as a commodity. I'm going to put it another way. You cannot be a disciple and a consumer. You can't be both. You can't both be a disciple of Jesus and be a consumer of Jesus because to consume him, to turn him into something cheap, turn him into something anything less than who he is, is to deny his very nature, to deny his very essence, which is the heart of what true faith is. You can't be a consumer and a disciple. You can't see Jesus as a commodity and the Son of God. But when we don't, that's what happens. You know, where I oftentimes uh, hear this, I'll ask a lot of people why they go to church. I'm a pastor, I'm interested. Why are people going to church? Um, oftentimes they'll say, you know, I, I find community there, or I, I like the music, or I'm challenged by the preaching, or my kids are being trained there. All these different things, or, you know, like there's healing that happens there, there's prayer, all these good things. And we want all of those things to happen, so please don't mishear me. We want all those things to happen at church, and we want them to be good. But just once, I would love to hear somebody say, the reason I go to church is because Jesus is the Son of God. It's because Jesus is the Son of God, and I want to be obedient to him. It's because it's Jesus who tells us to, to dwell in community, to place ourselves under the constant teaching of the Word of God, to sing spiritual songs together, to worship together, to train up our children to know and to love God, to proclaim the gospel. It's Jesus who tells us that. That's why we should be here. It's because Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, but the only way we can treat him as healing in a show, as a commodity, as something, as entertainment, is if we fail to recognize and see that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. Another thing that we see happen, that those who don't see Jesus as God's Son will try to use Jesus for power and for privilege. What's really interesting is that the same people who actually saw Jesus transfigured are the same people arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Like, it's shocking how dense the disciples can be at times. I'm not necessarily even hating on them because I would probably be just as dense. But they're just missing it, and they're arguing, and they're saying, okay, well, if he's going to be this ruler, if he's establishing a kingdom, I want to be there. I want to be the most important thing. They're arguing about that. Who deserves it more? And then, when they hear that somebody else is healing in Jesus' name, they, they get mad. They complain to Jesus. They say, no, we have exclusive rights. People are supposed to come to us for healing in your name, not to go somewhere else. You've got to go stop him. 
That's what they're saying to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, why would I stop him? It's my name that has the power. It's not the person. But people try to use Jesus for power and for privilege. You see, we see this all the time. We see it a lot in the church. Like, I know that this is something that I have to check my heart with at all times. What am I doing here, and why am I here? Am I here for my name? Am I here for my glory? Am I here for God's? This happens with people, elders, lay leaders, just people in general in the church. We see politicians do this all the time. Well, they will hold the name of Jesus just to, just to get people's vote. We see this all the time. People want power. People want privilege. As though we earned the privilege of being the elect. As though we earn God's grace. And we have anything to boast in it. But when we don't see Jesus and recognize him as God's son, when we don't identify him properly, this is how we end up using him. This is how the people used him. And, and it's interesting, you start to see frustration in Jesus. Jesus gets frustrated. Jesus gets mad and it's righteous. His people are missing him. He's right there. He's the person they've been longing for. He's the better Moses. He's the son of man who comes after Elijah. He's the fulfillment of all of their expectations and hope and they're missing him. They're wanting to use him as a cheap ticket out of there. They're wanting to use him for entertainment. They're wanting to use him for power and privilege because they just don't get it. They just don't see it. Those who don't see Jesus as God's son will try to use him for a free ride to glory, healing in a show, and power and privilege. But in this we also see, I think, what, what is reflective. What, what happens when we do see Jesus as God's son? Like I said, this is a line drawn in the sand for defining what discipleship actually looks like. This is a line drawn. And Jesus is going to help articulate this. There's really only one person in the story who actually gets it. The rest is Jesus responding to people who don't get it to help define what it means to follow him. But those who do see Jesus as God's son, first and foremost, they listen to him. This comes straight from God the Father's mouth. It's very simple, it's very clear, but it's very challenging. Those who see Jesus as God's son, listen to him. What listening to him means implies obedience. This is not just a passive listening where we hear it and walk the other way, kind of like when Lauren is asking me to cut the grass or many other things. It's a passive listening, okay? Or a not listening. Um, that's not what it's talking about here. This is the kind of listening where somebody tells you to do something and expects you to do it. And for you to have heard him, you actually do it. It says, listen to him, obey him, do what he says. It's that blunt that God the Father puts it. If you see Jesus as God's son, if you see him who he is, do what he's telling you to do. What that means is that we, as a people, submit ourselves to the word. When the word butts up against our opinion, butts up against our preferences, when the world seems contradictory to what the culture seems is, is saying is normal, we don't bend the word to it. We submit ourselves to the word. We submit ourselves to Christ. We recognize, I'm not God. I don't know what this is, and nobody else is here. I'm going to listen to him because I actually believe that he is the son of God. I believe that he is the one who would come to teach us all things, to show us the law, to manifest the heart and the desires of God, and I'm going to listen to him. So listen to him. Those who do see Jesus as God's son, trust Jesus in faith, submission, and prayer. Uh, the, the story of the father coming and bringing his boy to uh, Jesus to be healed is one of my favorite stories. I'm really sad that we don't get to spend more time in this. Um, but what happens is this father, you don't know much backstory, but this sounds like this is a kid that has been uh, tormented by this from a young age. This poor boy who's being thrown into these epileptic seizures by this demon, made mute, made deaf, thrown into water, thrown into fire. I, I know as a father, I would have, you would do anything. And this man has probably tried everything at this point in time to heal his son. He hears about this Jesus. He hears about his disciples. He comes to the disciples. The disciples can't do it. And as a last effort, he just says, Jesus, if you can, I, I, I want you to have compassion. He comes to him and asks him, in faith, he says, I, I, I think that you can heal him. 
And I love Jesus' response because it seems so rude (laughs) in the moment. It seems so strange and uncharacteristic of Jesus, but what Jesus is doing is drawing out of him real faith. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. It's a very short response. This man is desperate. His son is being tormented by this demon. He says, if you can heal him, please do. And he says, if you can. And then I think the the next line is one of the best like sentences, like phrases in the whole Bible. The father cries out. He says, I believe, but help. Help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And it's interesting because when he, when the father asks Jesus to heal his son, Jesus doesn't do it. He only does it after he says this word. And it's, and I think it's because in this moment, this man is actually expressing real faith. This man is actually expressing something unique. Because the truth is, disciples did heal other people. It wasn't weird that he trusted and believed that healing could happen because it was seen, it was proven. God heals his son, recognizes his faith, not because this man believed he could heal his son, but because he believed that God could change his heart. Because he believed that Jesus could change his heart. At that time, there were many people who could heal in Jesus' name, but only one person who could change his heart, and that was God. God is the one who changes hearts. So in this moment, in this cry, where he says, I believe, help, help my unbelief, change my heart, turn me from my doubt, take away all those things in me that are keeping me from trusting you fully, please do that. In that moment was faith. And in that moment, God, Jesus recognized him and said, you see me, you finally see me. So those who see Jesus as God's son respond to him in faith. They trust him. They know that God can change their hearts. They know that Jesus is the one who can change their hearts. They do this. And it's interesting because right at the end, the disciples are saying, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus' response to them was, because it's not your power. Of course you couldn't do it. This demon would only come out by God. It's not you who's casting him out. You need to say, I can't do this, but I'm going to ask somebody who can. It's only through prayer. As we were met with these situations all the time. Marriages are falling apart. Our businesses are failing. Our kids are just going crazy, doing crazy things that are hurting themselves. And we look at this moment and we say, God, I know that you can do this, but my heart is cold. My heart doesn't trust you. Help me. This is a prayer that we can pray. And for those of you who see God, Jesus as God's son, It's a prayer that exemplifies faith. We respond to God with faith, with trust, with submission, with prayer. Those who do see Jesus as God's son also, they serve others, especially those who can't give anything back. Um, When Jesus uh, asked them about what they were arguing about and they said, well, I'm arguing about who's the greatest, the disciples are saying, who's the greatest of all, kind of hoping maybe Jesus would just settle it. He says, well, let me tell you, if anybody would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he takes a child and puts him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms. He said, whoever receives once a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I think a lot of people look at this moment and say like, oh, this is just so sweet. What a precious moment. And then we build little statues about it, stuff like that, and put them in kids' rooms. What a precious, sweet moment. Um, but I have kids, and I know better. Uh, he didn't use the kid there because kids are sweet. Because kids, they have sweet moments, but at their core, at their heart of hearts, they are not sweet creatures. They are ungrateful. <laughs> they will pester you. They will diminish you to nothing. <laughs> I love my kids. But uh, let, let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, uh, up until like a few weeks ago, our kids couldn't swim. They'd been in swim lessons pretty much ever since they could, like I think they, before they were one, we put them in swim lessons. But uh, like they couldn't swim up until this moment. So uh, before then, what swimming was, what going swimming with our kids was, was they would jump in the pool and drown, <laughs> and then we would pick them up and save them. And this happened 
hundreds of times, nonstop. They would just drown, and we would save them. They would drown, and we would save them over and over and over again. Swimming with little kids is the worst. <laughs> but this is what would happen. Now, you would expect, let's say we were in a similar circumstance, and literally over the last hour, I have saved your life a hundred times. We get out of the pool. What would you say to me? You would grovel at my feet, say, everything I have is yours. Thank you. You have my undying love. I will listen to you and do whatever you tell me to do. But is that what my kids do? No, they just complain. They're just mad. They throw a fit because they had to get out of the pool, and then they ask me for a cookie or something like that. I'm like, I could have given you a cookie if you'd thanked me and groveled at my feet. I would, have, I would love to, but you didn't. Kids will not say thank you. This is the point. This is why Jesus brings a kid into this. He said, I want you to serve others, which I think for some people say, you're like, yeah, I'll serve people. I'll help people if it, if it benefits me, if it makes me look good, if they say thank you, if they're grateful. So God, Jesus puts in front of them somebody who will not say thank you, who will not care. Like, a kid does nothing for your social status. A kid does not help you. A kid does not make you cooler. A kid will not say thank you. Like, I look at my life now compared to what I was before I was a kid. I am so much less cooler. Like, last week, I went to the beach with my family. I wore a sun hat and a fanny pack. <laughs> like, I bought the fanny pack. I didn't find it. I bought it because I just wanted a convenient way to get to the beach and carry my stuff. Like, kids make you so much less cool, okay? And that's the point Jesus is making here. He says, if you see me as God's son, if you actually recognize me for who I actually am, you'll serve others. And not just people that make you look better, but people that aren't going to say thank you. People that don't care. People that will do absolutely nothing for your social rank. Serve them. So those who do see Jesus as God's son, they listen to him, they trust Jesus in faith, submission, and prayer. They serve others, especially those who can't give back. And they also, they suffer with Christ. Now this happens in the course of uh, three chapters where Jesus actually says, hey, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. He tells his disciples this. He says it in the transfiguration, he says it again there, he says it a little bit earlier and a little bit later. He says, this is my path. This is what it looks like. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. And I'm going to be killed. And the implication in this is that if you're following me, expect the same. Expect it. Suffering is not something unique and weird to the Christian. It's something that should be expected. I think in this country, we are oftentimes anesthetized to the suffering that really happens in the world for being a Christian. There's people dying right now. Families being torn apart. This is real. This is happening now. This isn't just a historical thing. And you know what? That day may come here. And when that happens, we shouldn't fear it. We should expect it because Jesus told us. He said, following me is costly. Following me means suffering with me. We should expect it. We should, we should know that suffering is coming. But all of this, and this is why I think the transfiguration is so important, this is why it's so important that he mentions the resurrection so many times throughout this, is that those who do see Jesus as God's son, even though they, while they're listening to him, while they're trusting him, while they're serving others, while they're suffering with him, they do all of this while they hope in the glory that is to come. Those who do see Jesus as God's son hope in the glory that is to come. The transfiguration is a glimpse of the glory. It's a moment in time where we get to peek into what it will look like, where our old, aging bodies will be replaced with glorious ones, where there will be no more pain, no more death, no more sickness, no more war. We'll dwell with each other in unity. The conversation that Jesus is having with Elijah and with Moses, one day we will be able to join the conversation of the faithful departed because we are all one people living under one God in righteousness. That is the hope that we have. 
That is something we hold before us at all times in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our service, in the midst of our faith, in the midst of our obedience. We do all this because we know that God, that Jesus is God's son and the glory is coming. We hope in the glory that is to come. Jesus is the son of God and following him is costly and this is why I added this, but it's worth it. We are not doing any of this without hope, but the only real hope that this world has ever seen and that's the hope of the resurrection. Right now, I want to invite our communion servers forward. And because I, I think that um, this is a moment that we, uh, that means the communion servers can come forward. Uh, you guys are looking at me strangely. Uh, um, communion is, is something we do every week to remind ourselves of this very thing. To remind ourselves that Jesus was the Son of God, that following him is costly because we remember when we see the bread that is broken, it was his body given. We take the wine because it was his blood shed for us. But we do all this because we know and we remember that God is a God who keeps his promises. So when we come forward, when we sing, when we, when we give of ourselves, we do this all with the anticipation of, and the hope of the glory that is to come. We do this every week so that we can remember that God is a God who keeps his promises that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and that we should follow him, that we should listen to him. So let me pray, and then we're going to take communion. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for declaring to us that Jesus is your Son, for making it known, God, that he is who we've been waiting for. We don't have to wait further. We just have to trust Lord God, that we can know you through his presence. Lord, that we can be interceded for by him. Lord, that your kingdom is here. Your kingdom has been established. And it is established through faith. It is established through obedience. It is established through uh, serving, through suffering. Lord, all for your hope, all for the glory that is to come. Lord God, I pray that we would be a people who don't reject you, who don't miss it. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who see you as who you are. God, and respond appropriately. Lord God, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.